Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, is our guest is Dan Gingas. Dan, uh, welcome, and uh, please show the cover of your book. Sure. Hello, everybody. Thanks for coming. This is literally hot off the presses. I just got it this week. Uh, it's an advanced copy of my book, The Experience Maker, and uh, it'll be available in September for purchase, but available for pre-order now. And thanks for having me, Mark. Oh, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you, and I loved your book. Dan, can you first tell the audience a little bit about your background? Absolutely. So uh, currently, I am a customer experience speaker and coach. I work for myself. Uh, my, jo- my joke to everyone is I like working for the Dan better than I liked working for the man. Uh, but I did work. I did work for the man for many years, over 20 years in corporate America uh, at big companies like McDonald's, Discover Card, Humana. Uh, so cross industry, mostly in marketing. But I evolved over time into digital experience and really fell in love with the ability to connect with customers and to really use customer experience as a marketing vehicle. So even today, I like to say that I sit at the intersection of customer experience and marketing. I speak I speak like a marketer because I am a marketer, uh, but I really feel the importance of customer experience. And that's what the book is about as well. Yeah, I, that's what I was going to ask you next is, why did you pick this particular title for this book? Sure. So The Experience Maker is the name of my company and uh, also the name of the book. And the idea behind the term The Experience Maker, this is not a description of me. Uh, the the term is really about trying to get other people to become the experience maker at their business. Now, when I worked at Discover, I do feel like I became the experience maker there. I was in charge of creating experiences, of eliminating uh, barriers and customer pain points, uh, of being that person who, as my boss once said, always wears the customer hat in every corporate meeting. That's the experience maker. And my book is aimed at, and my coaching services are aimed at teaching other people to be that person in their business, to always be looking at the details from a customer's perspective. It's so easy for us to get lost in the business perspective to say, oh, let's do this because it's going to make us more money. But sometimes we're making more money on the backs of our customers and it's causing people to leave our our business, which means we're actually losing money while we're making money, but we're not tracking that part of it. And so I always try to teach people to focus on that customer element, make sure that you solve every business problem from a customer perspective. And then the subtitle is how to create remarkable experiences that your customers can't wait to share. So what this is really about is I'm going to teach you how to create great experiences that people want to talk about. And as a marketer, the holy grail of marketing is word of mouth. That's what we're all trying to get. Now, we can do that either by creating a viral video, which if we all knew how to do that, we would do it every day, or we can do it by creating experiences that people want to talk about. And it's really based on some research that showed that customers are more willing to share positive experiences than they are negative experiences. 
Now, that may seem backwards because you go on to social media and mostly what you see is people complaining about negative experiences. But the reason for that is that consumers don't have a lot of positive experiences to share. And when I'm when I'm speaking in front of a large audience in a keynote presentation, I'll often ask the audience, raise your hand if you remember the last time a company wowed you and you couldn't wait to tell people about it. And a couple people raise their hands. Then I'll say, raise your hand if you remember the last time you were disappointed by a company. And every hand goes up because we all remember that because we've all had that experience. So my belief is if we create more positive experiences in the world, we give people what they want to share, which is positive experiences. And it allows us as a company to change the sentiment about our brand and really to break out from the competition and get people talking about us in the way that we want them to, which is very credible and very authentic, talking about how they had an, an outstanding experience with us and they recommend us to others. Before we dig into the book, I always like to ask this question. What are the three things you would like readers to walk away with before we really dive in? Sure. I think the first thing is I want you to walk away with this idea that we spend as as collective companies so much more money on sales and marketing than we do on customer experience. And it doesn't make any sense because our customers are the ones that are paying our paychecks. They are keeping the lights on. They're the reason we're in business. But what happens is as soon as we get them as customers, we tend to ignore them because we're so focused on bringing in even more customers. And one of the concepts I talk about in the book is called the leaky bucket. And this is about customers that are leaking from your business, that are leaving you, usually for the competition, and usually without even telling you, because they're not getting any sort of experience once they're there. And we all know how difficult it is to get a new customer. One of the things that we can do to relieve some of that stress is to keep the customers we have. So that's one thing. I think the second thing is I want you to believe that where I want you to be inspired by all of the examples that I share in this book. There's probably 50 or so examples, real life examples from real companies that are using the techniques that I teach in this book. Now, is every single example gonna inspire you? Probably not, but a lot of them are. And one of the cool things is that the filter that I use before I share an example, and this is from coming in, from being in corporate America and knowing how things work, there's a very simple filter that I use. The idea has to be simple, practical, and inexpensive. If it is not all three of those, it is not going to make it as an example in my book. And so when you see these examples, you should be inspired to say, why are we not doing this? We could do this tomorrow. We don't, I don't even need permission to do this if I'm a, let's say I'm a middle manager or something, because I don't even need to spend any money. I can make this change tomorrow and improve the experience. So that's the second thing. I think the third thing is, that uh, the book will give you the implementation tools for actually getting this done in companies. Because again, having worked in corporate America, I'm not gonna recommend something that the legal department isn't going to approve or that you're gonna need so many signatures on or so many pieces of software and technology that it's gonna take you years to implement. I give you simple implementation steps so that you take the part, the stories that you're inspired by and then you can go ahead and implement them. Yeah, and I, I thought the book was great and very useful, especially as I'm launching another new venture. I thought there were some really good things to think about there. Well, what's your definition of customer experience? Actually, very simple. It is how customers feel 
about every single interaction with your company. And the two key components there are the feel part because perception is reality. If customers feel that your mobile app is difficult to use, it doesn't matter what your programmers say. It's difficult to use, right? So the feeling part, the perception is the reality. And then every part of the experience, that's the other really important part of the definition. We often think of customer experience as the part where we're directly engaging with the customer. Maybe they're on a customer service call, or if we have a, a physical presence, it's when they walk into our store or a restaurant. But there are so many other parts of the experience that are not right in front of the customer. It's the part where they're researching. It's the part where they're applying for a credit card. It's the part, if you're a B2B, where they're uh, reading over your contract, or they're paying your invoice, or they're looking at your legal disclosures or they're trying to find something on your website. These are all parts of the experience and they all add up. And what we see from research is customers are getting less and less patient. We don't have as many chances as we used to to disappoint them. And so we've got to be aware of every interaction that they have with us. Because if we're really good over here, but we're really bad over here, we're likely not going to keep the customer. You're right. I mean, the competition is so vast and so global that if you're not on top of that, you're, you're going to end up out of business in a very short order. You, you write in the introduction, there are three groups that every leader should focus on. Who are they and, who are they and why? Yeah, so the book is really aimed at, uh, what, I, what, I, what I said in the introduction is I wanted you to think about these three groups of people as you were looking at these examples. So I want you to think of it through their lens. The first is employees. And employees are so important because the good thing about customer experience versus something like price or product is that customer experience by definition is going to be unique because our employees are unique. Only our company has our employees. And so customer experience is a lot tougher to copy, which is why it is such a great competitive advantage. But we have to think about our employees as we build the experience because number one, happy employees equal happy customers. We cannot expect we cannot expect employees to deliver a great experience if we're not delivering a great experience for them. And that has become even more acute during the pandemic when we've been separated from employees. Uh, number two is that it's the employees that are often the ones that are empowered to deliver on that experience. And so we need to make sure they have the tools and the training and the feeling of empowerment to be able to solve problems for our customers. The second group is obviously customers, right? That's who we're doing this for. And so we want to think about our customers as we're building all of this. The third group is only for B2B companies, but it's the customers of your customers. Because eventually what is often happening is the experience that we are creating for our B2B customers is often then re-delivered to their customers. If we're not thinking about how to make things easy for their customers, then we're missing an opportunity to help them be better. And when we help them be better, they need our services more, they continue to do business with us. So when we sell to a business, we've got to understand who their customers are as well, so that we're delivering a great experience for both our client, our direct client, and their customers. I, I think very few people actually think about your customer's customer when they're doing this. And certainly, as you know, and, and seeing you've had in your own service, the employees often complain about the company feeling they're not well taken care of and, and therefore they're in a bad mood before the day even starts. You quote a variety of statistics that point to a content 
not having the effect on persuading potential customers to buy one's product or service. What have you learned and what types of content and how frequently should it be used? So I like to invoke the image of an archery target. So think about this big target and it's been sitting there for a while. A lot of people have used it. So there are holes from the from the uh, the arrows all over the place. And some of them have hit the target and some of them are slightly near the target and some of them are way on the outer rings. And that doesn't even include the ones that missed the target entirely. That's my vision for how consumers look at content. We, we are bombarded by content from all sorts of companies in all sorts of channels. We've got blogs, we've got videos, we've got podcasts, we've got all sorts of stuff coming at us, emails, tweets, you know, it's really, it's hard to keep track of all of it. And the, and the problem is, is that so much of it is not relevant. And so it's left to the customer to sift through what's important. I think that one of the best ways to combat this as a company is to stop focusing on trying to put so much content out in the world for your prospects and start focusing, as I said before, on your existing customers. You know, the ones that are actually keeping us in business. First of all, they're going to tell you what kind of content is relevant. All you got to do is ask. And one of the things, well, I know we're going to, you're going to ask me a question about this a little bit later, so I'm foreshadowing a bit. But one of the really key components that I come back to a number of times is the necessity of talking to your customers. I don't mean finding out their NPS score. I mean, NPS is a great uh, net promoter score, is a great statistic. It tells you how you're doing, but it doesn't tell you why you're at that score. And really the best way to get to that is to talk to your customers. You can do it in a survey form. Even better is to pick up the phone and call them. One of the things that I did when I was at Discover Card, and this was mandatory for directors and above, and I, I recommend this to every company. Every month, we were required to go to a meeting in which we listened to actual customer service calls. Now, these calls were not allowed to be cherry-picked. They had to be random. And we would shift every month a different area of the business. So we might listen to credit card calls one month and home loans and personal loans and student loans, you know, in other months. But what was what was fascinating is we would sit and listen to these calls. And there were two things we would look at. The first was how did the agent do and what kind of coaching would we give to the agent to help better solve the problem? But the second was even more important. It was why did this customer have to call us in the first place? Because they had to call us with a problem, which means that somewhere in our experience journey, something broke or something didn't work the way we thought it would, causing a problem. There's an old adage in the contact center world that if one person calls, it means 100 people have the same problem. And, and just to the other 99, don't bother calling. And so we really listen to these customers. And I'll tell you, when you hear the emotion in their voice, the frustration, the anger, it will change you. It will cause you to act in a way that a report can never do um, when you actually hear. And that's why we refer to it as the voice of the customer. I'm talking about the literal voice of the customer. It also helps to hear what does your customer sound like? Are they older? Are they younger? Are they, uh, do they have an accent? Do they have, you know, where are they from? You don't get that from reports. You know, you don't get that from just demographic tables. You get it from talking to them and learning about them. And those are the ways I find that will allow us to create much better content that is way more applicable and relevant to our audience than just the, the, the target method of throwing a bunch out there and hoping that some of it hits the target. 
I have to tell you, you're totally right because I do a lot of marketing uh, plans and execution on them. And I had an accounting firm, one of the big regional accounting firms, and the guy pulls out a book for me where they surveyed their clients, but it has their names and what they said. And I said, that's like asking your kid, if you're a lousy parent, they're never going to tell you, but they'll tell somebody else. And so I said, I'll tell you what, I'll bet my entire fee that one of your top three clients are leaving. Got that business right away. And I did. I found their second largest client was already in the last interview to replace them. And they were a $250,000 a year audit client. So without talking to these people. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because... You know, there's a there's a phrase that is often used in, in for something else, and, and and this is a family program, so I'm not gonna. Uh, you guys will figure it out, but it's silent but deadly, and uh-huh. that is those are the d- most difficult customers are the silent ones because the silent ones pick up and leave. They don't tell you they're leaving, and they don't even tell you why. But I can almost guarantee you they're leaving for your competitor, and so it's a double loss, right? You've lost a client, your competitor has gained a client, and the worst part is you don't know why. And so one of the things that I always recommend is don't ever be afraid of complaints because when customers complain, they're doing it because they care. They actually want to stay doing business with you. They want you to fix their problem. If they didn't care, they'd just pick up and leave. And again, those silent but deadly ones are the worst ones. So when customers do complain, put on you know your thick skin and don't be offended by it, but be willing to take the feedback and do something about it. I told you that I tell all these stories in my book. I also tell stories in my keynotes, probably 12 for a a typical keynote. I always survey the audience afterward and ask them specifically which stories resonated with you and did any not resonate with you. I can tell you the ones that people say didn't resonate are no longer in the keynote and didn't make the book. So I am constantly updating my examples to make sure that everything resonates. And I ask for that feedback. Look, I love all the examples. That's why I share them. But I'm not offended if somebody says, eh, Dan, that one didn't really work with me. I'm not going to be offended. I'm going to change and make it better. And I think every company should take that act of listening to complaints because thank goodness your customer is complaining. That actually means they want to stay versus the one that you said, Mark, which was on, on the way out the door and not even going to tell them what was wrong. Now, when I would do these interviews, I would tell the um, the clients, I said, nobody knows what you're saying, only what you've said. But if I find out they're leaving, I say, I won't tell them unless you give me the permission. And 99 times out of 100, I got the permission. I mean, I did it for a big money management firm, saved them a billion dollars in new inflows because one of the biggest banks in the country was leaving them. And once I found this out and I was able to relay it, executive vice president of this enormous global mind match firm called them up, got on a plane that day and flew down to uh, the city that this company is in. So doing those things or especially have an outsider do it is probably the most important thing you could possibly do. One of the questions we have from a guest is, do you see a difference in the will and capability to engage in a customer discussions on the phone or Zoom? I I don't know exactly the answer to that question, but what I will say from a personal perspective is what I have found on Zoom is that Zoom allows us to have a more personal conversation than even if we were meeting at a conference and we had a cocktail in our hand. I'll give you an example. I was networking with somebody a couple of weeks ago, 
And as soon as we turned on the Zoom call, I noticed that he had a framed uh, Michael Jordan jersey behind him. Now, I'm from Chicago, and I actually have a great story. I, I once delivered a pizza to Michael Jordan, the, the man, the legend. That's not the one he spit on, right? No, 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 not at all. Of course not. But that was an immediate connection that we made that we would have never made in person because I would have not known that he was a Michael Jordan fan or it would have been tougher for me to get. So I love the concept, uh, although I don't have any data to support it. I love the concept of getting your customers on a video call because you will learn so much more about them. You you know, we've also, what think about what we've learned from each other over the last year. We know each other's uh significant others. We know each other's kids. We know each other's pets. We didn't know that when we were going to the office and, and, and talking to people or, or meeting with people or going to conferences. And by the way, we can use that, right? That is important. If you have a CRM and you know that, uh, that you know, you're, you have a client who has a pet named Spot, put that in and, and think about where you might be able to use that because, you know, maybe the holidays come around and you're sending out gifts and maybe you send something for spot. And I'm telling you that will absolutely wow your customer. So when you have this ability to learn more about them, use that in the future. And I definitely think Zoom uh, can be helpful for that. I've used Zoom quite often for these kind of interviews in the past year. And I think it's great. The phone was good because it was like being in a confessional. You know, if they didn't at that point, they, if they didn't have to look at you, they told you everything you needed to know because they didn't have to stare at you. But you're right in terms of the Zoom, you get to see people's backgrounds and develop a rapport with them. Yeah. I, I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's a it's sort of a slope, right? The, the, the best would be in person. The next best would be Zoom. The next best would be the phone. Then you get to the digital channel where really you're reading responses. And that is so much tougher. It's, you got to get the emotion and, and you got to understand the personality of the person to really appreciate the feedback. How effective is advertising today as it's still a good place for businesses to funnel money? So, yes, we absolutely have to still be advertising. And I'm not suggesting that we not. I am suggesting that we take a look at our advertising and marketing budgets and we compare it to the budgets that we're spending on our existing customers. It is so overwhelmingly in, you know, uh, unequal that there is room to funnel marketing and advertising dollars to the existing customer base without really ruining the, the marketing plan. And that's all I'm saying is that if we spend all this money to bring in new customers, but then we don't have a good experience for them. All we're going to do is churn, and we're going to. And, and when you churn, and when you have a leaky bucket, and you're losing customers, that actually makes it tougher on the sales and marketing team because now they got to recoup the people that they've lost, plus they have to hit the gains, right? And so that's why when you look, especially now at startups, you look at investors and private equity firms, and then even as as we go public, you look at the the the. Uh, Public markets, retention is becoming such a metric that people are paying attention to. If you can't keep customers, then who cares if you're good at acquiring them, right? And so that's really what I'm saying. I do think advertising still works. I would say my general feeling there is remember that advertising is the beginning of the experience. So if you want to advertise to me in a way that is relevant in a channel that I happen, you know, if you meet me in a channel that I'm in and provide me with relevant advertising, fantastic. Mark and I were talking before the, the show that we're both really big baseball fans. I listen to Cubs games on the radio all the time. 
I can't believe how annoying some of the radio ads are. I always try to imagine the people that are sitting in the conference room saying, yeah, this is a great ad when I'm like, my ears are bleeding. It's so annoying. And that's the beginning of the experience. There is a particular charity that I will not name that has the most annoying jingle on the radio. And I will never donate to that charity. And I know that sounds like it's harsh, right? But I'd rather donate to a charity that doesn't annoy the you-know-what out of me. And so right, sure. from an advertising perspective, we have to remember that that is the first experience that we have. And one of the reasons why I love this intersection of CX and marketing is that I really think marketing's job now is in essence to promise the experience that the rest of the company is going to deliver. Now, marketing is also getting saddled with some of the task of delivering on that experience, which is great because it, 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 it improves the consistency of the experience. But basically, that's what advertising is doing. It's saying, come buy our product, come use our service, and here's what you'll experience when you do. And we just need to remember that once we promise that experience, we got to be able to deliver on it through the rest of the company. No question. One of the questions we have here is, will you please speak to uh, whether in your experience, it's more productive to have an internal person conduct the feedback conversation with clients or a third party? Third party typically doesn't get defensive when they hear negative comments, whereas an internal person often does. But there may be other factors that favor internally conducted feedback. Your thoughts? Yeah, great question. I think you can be successful with either. The internal person, obviously, you don't want it to be the person that's working with the customer. So let's say you're a B2B SaaS company, you have a customer success team that is in charge of working with the customer every other or on a day-to-day basis. Those are not the people that you also want to talk to the customer in terms of feedback. You want somebody else from a different department who, again, is not going to be offended if they tell me, you know, I what I want to know is if you're working with Joe and Joe is annoying you or Joe is not delivering, I need to know that so that I can help either help Joe deliver it or find somebody else in the company who can. They're never going to tell Joe that because they don't want to hurt Joe's feelings. So I think if you, I think either internal or external can work. The benefit, of course, of internal is they just know the business and the product more. So they may be able to ask the right questions. Whereas with an external, you're going to have to script them a little bit more. Um, and they may miss the nuance of, say, a follow-up question, right? They may have a list of questions, but they're not going to know the follow-up questions to ask depending on the customer answer. So I've seen both work. Again, the important part is getting out there and getting the feedback. And then also... You know, when I was a uh, when I was in corporate America, far too often I would get customer feedback as just a written report. I remember when I started at Discover, we had a mechanism on the website where people could leave feedback. There's a bottom right corner. Uh, there's a little um, mechanism where you could leave feedback on any page on the website. We had 50 million logins a month, so on a daily basis, we would get hundreds of pieces of feedback. Now I would get that on a daily report. There'd be days where I wouldn't have time to go through it. And then the next day, I've got two daily reports to go over. And then the next day, I've got three. And you probably know how that feels. Eventually, you just say, okay, forget the last three days. I'm going to catch up on today. But also, that daily report, unless everyone was complaining about the same thing, it didn't give me any trends. It didn't help me figure out what to do. It you know, would tell me if something was on fire, but it really didn't tell me oh, there's been this really, this sort of slow simmering problem that's been going on on one of our pages for weeks. And we only get a complaint or two a week, but these are our best customers that are complaining about it. It doesn't give you any of that. One of the things that I did to combat that 
was in that little survey mechanism, we asked a quantitative question. We said, how easy was it to do business with us today? And after about six weeks of collecting that data, instead of the daily report, I asked for a report that was sorted by page by the results of that question. So I said, tell me all the pages that our customers are saying are the most difficult, because I want to know why. Now, the number one page that turned out to be the most difficult was a really important page. It was the page where we asked people to refer their friends to Discover in order to get you know, a $50 bonus for both of them. Well, when I looked only at the written feedback for that page, it became crystal clear what the problem was. There was a single browser where the submit button wasn't showing up. So people were putting in the names and emails of their friends and then they couldn't do anything. Sounds pretty annoying, right? We fixed that with maybe 10 minutes of coding time. And the, the how easy was it to do business question immediately went back to normal on that page. But it, the whole, the reason for me telling you this story is that I had to look at the data in a different way in order for it to be useful to me because there weren't enough people complaining about that page that I could see it on the daily report or see any sort of trend. But when we turned it around and we looked at it from the perspective of people are saying this page is difficult, now that's the quantitative data point. Let's go to the qualitative, why is it difficult? It was immediately easy to see. The next thing I did was I went to the next 99 most difficult pages and we fixed everything on those 100 pages. And it is no coincidence that that was the first year in history that Discover won the JD Power Award customer satisfaction, beating out Amex, which is a fantastic company known for customer experience. Uh, and they had Amex had won that award every year that the award was given. And that was the first year that we finally took it. So this stuff works. It's just that you got to be willing to dig into the details. Well, I think you should go to Orbitz because I think that should be a new client of yours because they're never close to a JD Power Award okay. uh, from my experience with these guys. Yeah, yeah, I'll have to find you the right person. You provide stats and anecdotes about why a variety of marketing tactics, especially social media, are misused. I would like to hear your thoughts on what industry should use or not use in the following Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube video, BMO, uh, along with uh, any others you would like to mention. Yeah, so let me talk about social broadly first, because I do think that this applies to all those channels. When I first got into social media as a marketer, the thing that stuck out to me immediately was this is the first and only marketing channel where people can talk back to you. And I thought that was fascinating. Now, a lot of brands were terrified of that because when we gave customers, when social media gave customers a voice, they used that voice and they told us what they thought, good, bad, and ugly. And as I said before, if we're not afraid of complaints, if we want to embrace that, Social media is a goldmine of information. It also allows us when we are responsive, which is one of the key component, one of the key pillars of my methodology, it allows us to create a relationship with customers in a way that we never could before. If you think about how did people communicate with brands in the past, even when I was growing up, I would write a letter to a brand. Maybe you would call a toll-free number if you wanted to talk to somebody. But basically, those were the two communication methods. Now someone can drop a tweet to us in a second and they can communicate with the brand. And the best part is as brands, we can communicate back and we can establish this relationship. We can show customers that we care about them, that we're listening to them. So I still do not love social media as a marketing channel, but I think it is an 
incredible engagement channel. It is an incredible way to connect with the community that you've built of customers uh, and to show prospects your brand's personality, what it's like to do business with you, the promise of the experience, et cetera. As to what channels you go into, that's going to depend completely on your business. When I worked for Humana, the main product that Humana sells is Medicare Advantage, which is a, which is an insurance product aimed at seniors. It didn't really matter that Humana wasn't on Snapchat because seniors are not hanging out on Snapchat. But boy, did we have to hang out on Facebook because we know grandma and grandpa are on Facebook, right? And so we had a great uh, strategy behind Facebook that really allowed us to connect with lots of seniors there and frankly, to target them with our marketing, let's be honest. But um, we knew that that's where seniors were. And so we spent almost all of our social media resources on a single channel because that's where they were. Depending on your business, you may have to be in one, two, three, four, five, or more channels. The question is, where are your customers? I will say that any channel that you want to market in, you should also be prepared to service in. And even channels like Instagram, where uh, it's not really thought of as a service channel because people don't use it that often, if you're going to be out there posting pictures, you got to make sure that you're ready for somebody to comment on one of those pictures saying, I'm having a problem with your product. Because what happens when we market in social media is social media, by definition, is interruptive, right? So we're scrolling, we're looking at cat videos and baby pictures, and then either we see an ad or we see an organic post from a brand. But this is interrupting our fun of going through those videos, right? Now, sometimes we'll see an ad or we'll see a marketing piece from a brand. And let's say the brand wants to tell us about their new product that they're offering. But that, we don't actually care about the new product, but seeing that brand name sparks a reminder in our head, oh, I've been meaning to ask them, I'm having this problem about something else. And so what do we do? We respond to their marketing ad with our customer service problem. And people do that all the time. Companies wish they didn't. But the reality is, is if you're going to be interruptive, you're going to spark that memory for people and you're going to cause them to respond in a way that is not, I mean, what we want is we want them to respond and say, ooh, so excited about your new product. But that generally isn't going to happen, right? So anywhere where you're marketing, you do have to be ready to service. Uh, what's the best way to use search for driving business? So I just uh, had a great experience with a client of mine that was not using search uh, hardly at all. And we spent the better part of 2020 building up content on the website to really improve their SEO results. And it is amazing what that can do. We tripled the amount of uh, volume to the website and we tripled the amount of keywords that the company was ranking for. And all because we put relevant content onto the website. It doesn't matter if you ever even market the content. It, that's not the point. The point is, is that search is such a valuable channel because when people are searching, they are demonstrating intent, often purchase intent. Now, think about that compared to what I just described on social media. I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling, and you have to interrupt me. I'm not in a purchase mode when I'm looking at cat videos. You are trying to get me in a purchase mode. But when I have searched for something, it is because I am already showing that intent. And it is absolutely critical that we're there to either answer the question or you know, share the details that the, that the person is looking for. So I love search uh, and organic search SEO 
as a way to get your brand out there and to um, uh, to answer questions and to create relevant content for prospects and customers. Uh, you mentioned the book that direct mail is still very effective. What industries use it best and what's the right formula for maximizing its potential? You know, I grew up in direct mail. It was my first job out of college. So I still have uh, uh, some love for it. And interestingly enough, I spent four years in, in direct mail. And I then learned, this is a true story, that my great, great grandfather was apparently credited with creating the first windowed envelope. So, you know, the little clear space wow. for the address. Huge. I mean, who knew, right? Um, but so obviously it was preordained that I go into the direct mail business. Um, look, especially in the United States, I understand in Canada as well. I think all over the world, we are getting less mail now in our mailboxes than we did 20 years ago by far. And what that means is that we're actually looking at the mail that we do get. You know, gone are the days where you get a stack of mail this high and you're just garbage, 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 because we're not getting that much. So you get two pieces of mail. Heck, by the time we've gone from the by the time I've gone from the end of the driveway to the front door, I've already opened <laughs> both pieces of mail. Right. So the open rate is so much higher than something like email. Right. Where we get tons and tons of email. Email has become what mail used to be. The other thing I think is really important. Uh, in the B2B space or really anywhere, it, it B2C as well, it's such a great way to connect with people in a physical space. A lot of the conferences that I've been speaking at over the last year, which of course have all been virtual, have added some element of they send a box to all the attendees so that we can do something together, so that there's something that we share. Maybe we are uh, eating the same snacks. Maybe we're, um, you know, whatever. But there's something that brings people together, a giveaway or what have you, that would have happened in person, and now we're doing through the mail. I've also found as a recipient in corporate America um, of many, many, many sales pitches via email, which I usually ignore. One of the sales pitches that got my attention was someone sent me a book in the mail. And, you know, especially when people go back to their offices, we get even less mail at, at, at work. So we're going to have almost 100% open rate on mail at work. And you send me something that's bulky and looks like a book, of course, I'm going to open it. And not only that, even though I wasn't interested in the service, I at least did the person a solid and reached back out to them and said, hey, thanks so much for the book. I don't think it's going to work right now, whatever. He wrote back to me and said, thank you so much for responding. Even though it's a no, at least I can cross you off my list and I don't have to bother, you know, continue going after somebody that isn't going to be a customer. So I do think direct mail has a, um, a lot of opportunity. And, uh, and one other hint I'll, I'll share from, um, from my book is there's a wonderful company called Punk Post, P-U-N-K-P-O-S-T. And they allow you to go onto their website or mobile app. And if you want to send a card to somebody, let's say a thank you card, a birthday card, whatever it is, uh, they have different cards that you can select. And then you write what you want said in it. And they hire an artist to hand write the card. Beautiful handwriting. They'll put images on or drawings and all this. It's literally a work of art. I and mean, even the envelope is unbelievable. And you get this envelope in the mail and you are absolutely opening this. And what's interesting is that they find that, that recipients of these thank you notes often save them. In When we were in offices, they'd hang them up on their cube or their bulletin board, and they're constantly reminded of you. Now, that probably doesn't happen when you send somebody a thank you email. 
whenever I work with clients, I always send them a punk post and it's something that makes me stand out. A typical punk post will cost you six or $7, which is about as much as going to the store and buying a Hallmark card and putting a stamp on it. So it's not particularly expensive, but man, it is a wow. And it's a great way, again, to use direct mail as a way to you know, show some appreciation for a customer without spending a ton of money. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I got that for my birthday from one of my close friends. And I thought it was his um, girlfriend who wrote the note. And I said, oh, my God, Lisa's handwriting is like a work of art. I kept going on and on about him. He said to me, no, I was using punk post. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but it was. I ended up keeping it because it was so gorgeous. One of the questions from one of our listeners is, what kind of tools should I know about for using direct mail as a startup? That's a, that's a really good question. And as a solopreneur, I'm trying to figure that out as well, because I'm, I'm actually working on a project where I'm sending out my new book to a bunch of influencers. And because I talk about experience, I want to make sure that I create an experience and I'm not just going to put it in an envelope and send it to them, right? I, I need to kind of practice what I'm preaching. Um, and so there are a lot of companies out there that that do um, gift boxes or um, other types of things uh, where they can help you assemble things. Obviously, it all depends on budget, right? I can spend $50 a box and I can spend $500 a box. It's, it's very easy to do either one. Um, but uh, I think there, you know, Punk Post is a great tool. There is another, man, I am... Uh, I, I'm, I can't remember the name of it, but there's another tool that, um, that you know, you can basically upload addresses. And if you've got an item, basically they'll drop ship it for you. Um, again, it depends on quantity. I do a lot of stuff myself, you know, just because I'm a solopreneur. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it, if, you're, if you're over a certain quantity and you're going to be able to take advantage of like postal discounts and stuff like that, you really do need to talk to a commercial printer or, uh, or a drop ship company that, is, um, that knows how to sort that and, uh, and can get you those discounts. So that's the best advice that I have right now. Um, how about telemarketing, which I find uh, quite annoying, but don't take it out on the telemarketers because I know they're just trying to make a living. Yeah, um, I don't recommend telemarketing. I think we've all, I think we're all over that channel. Um, I think the number of times that I'm blocking numbers on my phone, it's unbelievable. And they just keep, it's like, it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole. You get rid of one number and another one comes up. Um, So I don't think it's an effective channel. um, And I think that it is, the nuisance factor is just too high that even if you, you know, let's say you make a thousand calls, you sell 10 people and those 10 people are, are worth the expense of making a thousand calls. You got to keep in mind that you also annoyed 9,990 people and those people talk and those people have friends and colleagues. And so I think the brand damage is, uh, can be potentially very high as well. The only exception I would say, again, as we were mentioning before, is if you're calling, if it's a service call, if you're calling to find out how some, how, uh, you know, a customer is doing, if you have no sales agenda at all, I think it's fine. Um, but I think calling to sell is, uh, is not particularly effective. And there's even companies out there, again, Discover is one of them, that, that decided to make it a company policy that when you call customer service, they won't sell you on anything. Now that's a big change, right? And we all we all have called our credit card company in the past, and you, you you always know that moment right at the end. There's like a little pause. Okay, here comes the sale. They're going to try to sell me on something. And discovered realized that the customers hated that, and so they just stopped doing it. 
And I think it, you know, it takes brave companies like that to say, okay, we're going to make our money somewhere else and not at the expense of annoying people. So I say no to telemarketing, but I'm open to any, uh, if anybody wants to debate me on that, I'm, I'm happy to have someone take the other side. Yeah, especially if they're a telemarketer that's on here. But we do know one thing is if they buy your book and send it to a prospect, they are sure to get uh, an, uh, a conversation going and more than likely the sale, right? Exactly. It's a great way. Buying a book that you <laughs> like, not even my book, buying any book. I've said, here's one of my favorite books. Uh, and as we go back to the uh, SEO discussion, They Ask You Answer by Marcus Sheridan will teach you how to do this SEO thing and how to um, create and answer questions for your customers. I have sent this book to a ton of customers and clients that I know will really benefit from it. And so it's, yes, if you'd like to send my book, I would love that. Thank you. But it's really about uh, what I would suggest you do is you find different books for different customers and show them that they know you, right? So if I'm going to send Mark a book, it's probably going to be about baseball because I now know Mark really likes baseball. And that's going to have a much bigger effect on him than, than even a business book. Now, if I'm going to send him a business book, I'm going to figure out, okay, well, what business is he in? What kind of topics are, is he interested in? And so sending, I think a book is a great gift for a customer or a prospect because it's not particularly expensive. Um, and you can, uh, with a little bit of research, you can figure out what's going to be relevant to somebody. I, th I have to tell you, that's worked really well for me. And I haven't sent my own books that I've written, but I think uh, that one time I uh, there was a CEO in Philadelphia who ran a billion dollar company. And I saw that his great grandfather was a Duke grad, his grandfather was a Duke grad, his dad, him, and his dog was named Duke. So I assumed that he was really big into Duke. Pretty good. So I bought the <laughs> I bought the book about the '79 basketball team that lost to Kentucky, and I said from one Duke fan to another, and I sent him that book. Two weeks later, I got a call from his secretary inviting me for lunch. He wanted to meet this rabid Duke fan. This is before the internet. I had to go to the library and look up everything on Duke basketball. So I was prepared to have a real conversation, but that opened the door. And the other thing about sending books is that it shows that you're reading and thinking and constantly improving yourself. So it kind of makes a statement to people about this. So I think it's uh, it's only a win-win uh, for everyone. You write your best source for marketing advice and input, and you talked about this earlier, are your current customers. What's the best way to solicit their opinion surveys? Because we're all involve CVS, whoever it is, gives us surveys, focus groups, and or having a small online roundtables. What works best to get this information? So again, I think it's a combination, right? I think surveys are great. Uh, one of my clients is a company called Get Feedback. They're owned by SurveyMonkey, and they do great work in terms of collecting uh, feedback. And that can be both qualitative and quantitative. I still believe that in addition to that, there is nothing that replaces an actual face-to-face -face conversation with somebody and, or, or Zoom conversation is fine in today's world. Um, because again, even in the best surveys, you don't get, you can't hear their voice. You can't hear the, the frustration or the disappointment or the confusion or whatever it is. And when you hear that, it, I mean, just as a human, it will affect you. And, and, and I often left those call listening sessions thinking, man, like I want to help that person. And I want to make sure nobody ever calls with that feeling again, because that is not the feeling that we are trying to have customers feel 
right? Obviously, we're all trying to create good experiences for our customers. We want to make them happy. We want to make them buy more from us. Unfortunately, many companies are failing at that. Um, and it's really the companies that are willing to, to understand where they're failing and really hear the details of it. So I think surveys are a great place to start. They will be, uh, what, what surveys will tell you is first of all, quantitatively, how are you doing? And it'll also give you some sense of where to look for more detail. So let's say you're doing a survey in a bunch of different channels and what you find is that the survey in the mobile app is getting significantly lower scores. Okay, now I might find some mobile app customers to actually talk to in a focus group so I can get more depth around what's causing the problem in the mobile app that people don't are not as satisfied with. Uh, how does a business provide an immersive experience? Yeah, so immersive is one of the uh, five pillars in my book. And I have a, a little acronym to remember them called WISER because I want to make you wiser than the competition. And WISER stands for witty, immersive, shareable, extraordinary, and responsive. Now, the first four, the wise part, are about creating remarkable experiences. And then the responsive part is about what to do when people start talking about you in a positive way. You've got to be there to be part of the conversation. So immersive means uh, two different things. It really, it, the first part is creating an experience that people just feel, that they feel in their bones. The second part is creating a consistent experience so that every time I move from one place to another within the experience, it's consistent, it's clear, it's not choppy, it doesn't look like I've moved from one department to another. We know that the bigger companies get, the more siloed they get, but customers don't care about your org chart, right? Customers should not have to feel, oh, I just moved from the acquisition team to the retention team, right? They don't care about that. And so they need to have a consistent, smooth experience. So I give a, a bunch of examples uh, about immersive experiences. One that, that I, one story that I love to tell is a company out of San Francisco called Imperfect Foods. Uh, it started as Imperfect Produce. I'm a, a, a very satisfied customer. Uh, what they do is they actually rescue fruit and vegetables from farms that would normally be thrown into the landfill because they don't meet the cosmetic standards of grocery stores. They might be too big, they might be too small, they might have some dents on them or some marks on them. They don't look pretty. And they box these up into a subscription service where every week I can go onto their site, I pick exactly the fruits and vegetables that I want. If I, you know, if you if you like kumquats, you can get them. And if you don't like them, you never have to see them. Um, and, and sometimes the only thing that's wrong with them is that the farmer had excess. And that, and but even excess often gets thrown into the landfill. So what's awesome about this company is they have a great personality. They use their branding um, all has these funky looking vegetables that are strange shapes and they all have little, the little plastic googly eyes on them. And there, there's a billboard in downtown Chicago that says, we'll help you get more dates. And there's two giant dates with the googly eyes. Right? Really cute. <laughs> good and one. then when you go onto their website, you see this, uh, these two entangled carrots that like literally grew together and they've got googly eyes on it. Um, and so, when you go through the experience, everything fits. It fits their brand personality. When you get the box, the box has some funny things written on it. You actually like want to look at all you look look at the bottom of the box and all that because it's it's fun. It's a fun experience. And then when you open up this stuff, one of the things that they do that keeps me going is they measure the exact amount of 
uh, produce that I that Dan has kept out of the landfill, as well as the water and the CO2 that I have saved farmers by not having to have them replant. When I go on the website, I see my numbers continue to go up. And when I hit certain milestones, they send me a surprise in the box. They sent me a, a reusable shopping bag and a note saying, congratulations, you hit 100 pounds of saved produce, what have you. Um, I'm, I think I'm pretty close to 1,000 pounds at this point. And the, the point is, is that the experience is so immersive that even though I could just as easily buy even better looking produce from the grocery store, I want to keep doing business with them. I like what they stand for. I like how they treat me. I like the products. I mean, the, the produce is delicious. It's great. As long as you just get over the like, you know, it's okay if you're, I, I've gotten a zucchini that's like the size of Montana, right? It's like <laughs> zucchini. It's still, it's great. Um, and so that's what an immersive experience looks like. It's at every part from the marketing to the actual consumption of the product to the digital portion, the website, the mobile app. It all fits. It all works together. They probably don't have to do much advertising because word of mouth probably kills it for them. I got uh, as we're running short of time here. Uh, somebody asked, what survey company did you mention? They, could you repeat that survey company? Uh, get feedback. They're a client of mine. They are uh, owned by SurveyMonkey, which you probably are familiar with. SurveyMonkey. I use them all the time. Yeah. And so, get feedback is sort of the corporate, the company version of that, uh, and they do some great stuff. If you want to do what we did at Discover and and you know put a survey mechanism on your website to collect feedback, they're a terrific company. Tell them Dan sent you. Yeah, we'll we'll let them know for sure that Dan <laughs> sent them. So we have another question here from one of our uh, listeners. Do you or your customers go to academic research for input knowledge to excel at creating superior immersive customer experiences? So that's a really interesting question. I, I've I have uh, never been asked that question before. You know, when I went to college, they didn't have any classes on customer service or customer experience. And so if, from an academic perspective, um, and, and even when I went to business school, which wasn't that long ago, uh, there were not courses in it. I believe there are now. And so I think the academia, the academic part is growing. I do look a lot, and, and as you pointed out in my, um, in my book, I do turn to research a lot. So when companies do uh, research studies and they've served uh, surveyed consumers or what have you, I do turn to that quite a bit to, um, to, to learn from. Um, and then I think also, I mean, to me, the best place to learn and always has been is real life examples, because this isn't an academic exercise, right? In order for me to describe an immersive experience, I really got to show you one. It's it's going to, that's how it's going to work. And so I've always felt, and, and this is also a little bit uh, my own personal thinking that, you know, I've never believed that just because I'm the one on stage or I'm the one that wrote a book that you should listen to me right? I, I always supplement what I'm talking about with real life experiences because I want you to see how this works in action and be inspired by it. Um, I'm going to give you the idea and then I'm going to show you something inspirational to say, and again, what I said at the beginning, I want you to walk out saying, man, why are we not doing this? We could do this almost immediately. And so that's where I would look. I, I'm not sure that I've ever seen you know, truly academic studies on this stuff um, because I think customer experience is still um, fairly new. Um, also, I'm going to uh, I just uh, just uh, if you would like, um, totally up to you. I'm going to um, put a link in the Zoom if you are interested in Imperfect Produce. Um, yes, it's an affiliate link, so 
I get $20 and you get $20 <laughs> off of your first box. So if you have any interest in it, uh, go ahead and uh, and check them out. But I, I love Well, them. that sounds great. Um, and I also, I'm going to put the, uh, I don't have anything affiliate, but I will put the website for Punk Post as well if you'd like to check them out. Um, they are a wonderful, wonderful company. Yeah, and, and people have been uh, putting it down as you've been uh, saying it before. You, you mentioned in the book that uh, you suggest companies ask the question, who isn't your customer and why should you ask that? Yeah, that's a, so I love that. And um, this is really aimed at B2Bs, I think more, although B2Cs can certainly learn from it. But the good news is we waste a lot of time trying to sell to people that are never going to buy our product. And so if we know who isn't our customer, we can actually save a whole lot of money, a whole lot of time, a whole lot of resources, and a whole lot of frustration from our sales team to have them only focus on people that are. That's why that guy that I called and said, hey, I'm not interested, he re- the one that sent me the book, he so appreciated it. Because he already, I guarantee you, he already had in his little CRM system 17 follow-ups for me. And now he doesn't have to do that because he knows I'm not the right fit. Uh, and I think it is a valuable activity to go through to figure out not just who your product is or service is for, but who it isn't for. Uh, what are the most, deb- and I, this is two more questions, and uh, we're going to let you go for the day, and you've been fantastic. What are the most devastating mistakes companies can make that can destroy customer relationships? I think the first is not listening to your customers. It all starts with listening to your customers. Again, I said before, you got to have a thick skin because customers are going to tell you what you're doing right, which is great, but they're also going to tell you what they don't like. Now, the stuff that you're doing right, don't gloss over that. You should be doing more of that, right? So people really like the fact that, I don't know, you send them balloons on their birthday. They keep doing that and do that for more customers, right? But if they really can't stand your hold music when they call into customer service, you may have not ever given consideration to hold music. By the way, there is a story about hold music in the book as well. Uh, and how it, taking that, that's what we call, um, on my po- I have a podcast as well called Experience This, and we refer to uh, stuff like hold music as uh, the required parts of your business that you can still make remarkable. So think of required parts of your business like contracts and uh, invoices and hold messages and voicemails and even like out of office email messages. We just did a really fun segment on some of the best out of office uh, email messages. I just created, because I want to practice what I preach, a really fun uh, error message on my website. So if you hit a, a bad page, you're going to get a fun message, right? These are all required parts of our business that there is no law that says you have to be boring. And so they are there are opportunities like that um, where you can create an experience where one doesn't necessarily exist. Here's our last question for you. What future technologies will have the biggest impact on attracting and retaining customers? Yeah, I think uh, one of the ones that I'm seeing um, that is uh, really, I think, making some waves is augmented reality. So augmented reality is different from virtual reality. Virtual reality, think about putting on the goggles and you go to a different space. Augmented reality is where you use your phone. And for example, uh, I was recently uh, uh, buying carpeting, new carpeting for my home. I take a picture of the room and I can immediately try different carpets in my room and see what it's going to look like. Or I'm buying furniture from Ikea and I can put the piece of furniture in the room. This is so cool. And especially in a time where we're not going into stores as much, 
But I think that is absolutely, you can do it for anything. You can do it for engagement rings. I mean, you know, you pretty much can try on any clothing. You can you can look at any piece of furniture, anything in your home uh, beforehand. I think that is um, a, a very, I think that technology is going to continue to grow because it just helps people um, envision things better. We're also painting my house. And I'll tell you, that is scary, right? You don't want to pick the wrong paint and then have them put it all up and you you hate it, right? So being able to kind of look at it before they actually do the work is uh, is super helpful. So I, I definitely think that's a big one. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of startups in that area as I run the Angel Venture Fair. We're getting um, proposals from all over the world, people looking to raise capital in that area. Dan, you have been fantastic. I, I noticed that uh, practically no one dropped off uh, during the entire time that you spoke. So we know that they were very engaged and got a lot of great information from you. I want to thank everybody from around the world because we have listeners from 38 countries that listen to the show. So we again appreciate it. And we look forward to your next book. This was the second book you wrote, correct? It is. And uh, and let me launch this one first before we start talking about book three. Um, but I appreciate it. And thank you all for being here. Thanks also for the questions. I, I love getting questions. If you want to connect with me outside on LinkedIn or Twitter or on my website, uh, I'm happy to answer any other questions you have. And uh, I, I love engaging with people. Well, I'll make, sure, I'll make sure they get that information. Have a great weekend, everybody. Have a safe weekend. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.